if you want to see ideas as viruses, if you want to adopt a medical model of knowledge, you'll need to make room in your understanding for quarantine. Some ideas don't get cured. At best, they get contained. Content moderation is a key part of epistemic healthcare. If you're hoping to reach herd immunity for bad ideas, you've really just condemned us all to embrace the void. virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine falling so slow. Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional. I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Friends, episode 180 of Embrace the Void, which really should be called Grok the Void, but that's just a bit too much weirdness to throw at people up front. So I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are getting critical on the law and the free speeches. So let's use some rights. Life ends in death, which we as a species are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Spencer Bradley, a.k.a. Cafe Sinister on Twitter. Spencer is a public defender with a background in critical theory. Spencer, would you like to say hi to the void? I would. Hi to the void. I hope you all can hear me in the uh, entropy that continues to envelop us (laughs) in the coming days. Right, the slowly expanding heat death of the universe that we are all joining in together. Uh, Thanks for coming on. This is great. Uh, There's been a lot of, I feel like, side talk around issues of critical theory, especially in its relation to critical uh, race theory. So we're going to talk a lot about critical legal theory here and maybe how and specifically how it applies to everyone's favorite topic of free speech. Uh, Before we get to that, though, do you want to give folks a little bit of a sense of sort of your background and your interests in critical legal theory? Sure. So I primarily, my background, I have a BA in philosophy and public policy out of uh, Gettysburg College. And my focuses there were crit theory, uh, Marxist theory, um, sort of the issues that, you know, continue to carry with us to this day about living in a you know, developed capitalist um, society. And I went to law school where I mm-hmm. sort of became interested in the intersection between law and philosophy, you know, continuing that. And critical legal theory is sort of um, where the development of, you know, questioning the law as a concept really starts to be crystallized in American jurisprudence with some caveats that, uh, 
you know, we can get into. Mm-hmm. It is not nearly as powerful as people seem to think it is, but I think it has um, a lot of interesting tools that we sort of ignore. So when you say questioning the law, in what sense do you mean? Like, I assume we had some changes to the laws happening before then, but like a specific kind of questioning? Sure. So primarily you have different ways of looking at the law. And one of the big ways, you know, to give you a brief historical Mm -hmm. way of doing this is you have formalism, which is here's the law and we're just going to apply the law, you know, not really think about it. And then the 20s, with the sort of development of the progressive movement, you have the beginning of what is called legal realism. And that's popularized by people like uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's looking at trying to apply standards of social studies to the law, trying to, you know, see what the law is doing. Critical legal studies comes out, you know, in the 70s and 80s and says, well... Here's what the law is. Here's who's making the law. Here's how it's refracting social norms and conditions into the law that is then interpreted by people who are within that system of class that made the law. So there's, you know, these different layers that go into the legal process that, you know, recreate the system, if you will. And, you know, how do you do that? How do you get out of that particular paradigm of how the law works. So is this similar in some ways to someone like um, Bourdieu uh, doing the same thing with education and saying, you know, education is is supposed to be the system for growth and change, but it's really just reproducing, you know, certain inequalities or or inconsistencies within our system? Is that similar kinds of approaches applied to, to legal structures? Yeah, primarily. I mean, the critical legal studies movement, and maybe uh, Bourdieu is um, accused of this as well, but sort of says, look, law is politics. And Mm -hmm. what is the political process that's going into uh, education in your uh, instance? For me, you know, law, how are these things being reflected? There's not a a priori, you know, way of doing things. This is hate to use the term, but this is, you know, probably the most socially constructed of any field, uh, I would contend, because your legislators decide what law is, and you have a judge, you know, sitting in a position of power deciding how to adjudicate a dispute. Mm-hmm. Now, there, I guess, would some be, be some conservative traditions that would push back on that and say that there's some sort of natural law that we are seeking to sort of align our laws with and so it is less about us as a society constructing and and rather trying to sort of discover what the best laws actually are is that kind of what these people are resisting in a theoretical level right and you know obviously this is not you know one size fits all and i've grossly Mm -hmm. truncated the debates you do have you know a natural law sort of basis from people like uh, Aquinas and Augustine. And, you know, if you look at, say, human rights discourse and human rights law, a big part of what makes that work conceptually for a large amount of uh, history, and I don't think we've really reckoned with this, is, you know, this idea of God-given rights. There's something intrinsic to being human. And once you have that sort of foundation Mm -hmm. about what it means to be human or some other thing that gives you rights 
by necessity, you know, part of the legal tradition is trying to figure out, you know, what a divine law would be, what is the proper way of dealing with these sort of issues. So that's, you know, you can see in some circumstances, this idea, particularly in the area of criminal law of, you know, murder is the greatest of sins, therefore it has the greatest, you know, punishment, you know, an eye for an eye, that sort of paradigm. And of course, you have other legal traditions of trying to, you know, get to what the law is saying, things like textualism, originalism, formalism, you know, those have an intellectual tradition that, you know, is primarily conservative. I don't think you'll find too many progressive originalists out there, but, you know, it's trying to get to what the law is saying. Okay. At least in the, so, and, and a big, yeah. a big asterisk on a lot of this is this is coming primarily from an American uh, context. Mm-hmm. And generally I gather from a somewhat um, left context. So. Yes, I mean, I, my card's on the table. I am one of those uh, dreaded uh, neo-Marxists out there living in the w- wilderness. Right, so you are you are by, completely by yourself proving that there is a vast Marxist conspiracy to infect the law with all sorts of these radical... But these are, these are radical liberal ideas. We haven't yet gotten to the racial ideas that are actually destroying Western civilization. So I mean, there's a lot of things apparently destroying Western civilization, which okay. to, my mind says we need to shut it down so we can figure out what the hell's going on. <laughs> well, so is it was it the case that like when critical legal theory started to come into existence that it was accused of also collapsing Western civilization by undermining, you know, objective truth in favor of neo-Marxist uh, whatevers? So this is the interesting thing in that, yes, there was definitely a pushback, but where critical legal studies found its um, footing primarily is at, you know, high-end Ivy Leagues, um, law schools like Harvard primarily, and there was pushback. There was the denial of tenure to, you know, critical legal studies um, professors, um, You could say, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe there was something going on in their teaching. Maybe there was something going on behind the scenes. Um, One particularly, um, while the faculty approved uh, the granting of tenure, people higher up killed it. So Hmm. there's sort of, uh, typically, I don't think there's really... You could sort of prove that critical legal studies really didn't have the um, teeth needed to be as impactful because it's not really, you know, a thing Mm -hmm. anymore. This is a very um, contemporary movement within the 70s and 80s, primarily as a response to sort of this return to formalism in the legal uh, academia and also this idea that if you just reason through the law, if you approach the law, you know, with a reasoned eye, you can get to the, the bottom of it. You can get to what the law says, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty dominant in the American legal tradition from the Warren court through the Burger court. Mm-hmm. And sort of what we're getting here from the legal critical legal folks is because of these power dynamics, because of how these systems are constructed and maintained, you're not actually getting that kind of access. You're instead uh, reproducing mistakes from the past, in a sense. Yeah, or you're simply um, 
you know, maintaining uh, the status quo and in some ways, you know, beginning to revert um, from it. Uh, Unger, mm-hmm. uh, Roberto Unger, who is one of the more foremost critical legal theorists, um, sort of conceptualizes it in three stages, roughly, where there's, you know, this breakdown and there's this new sort of revolutionary concept. And, you know, this is the space where law can develop and be something new, something like the New Deal, which if you look mm-hmm. at the uh, contemporary explosion of the administrative state, the you know vast reforms to uh, contract law through the legitimation of labor law, you have this new mm-hmm. frontier. And then you have this sort of normalization where laws and jurists begin you know implementing it and building their own lexicon. And then you have this breaking down and this sort of resurgence of counter-revolutionary and you will, if you will, um tendencies mm-hmm. and so you know one of the things critical legal theorists say is you know the law has a lot of these you know powers at play a lot of these concepts at play and we should figure out how they interact with one another to give us the world we have today and maybe have a different world tomorrow i mean it's it's an analytical tool Mm-hmm. Now you you cited Unger there, which is funny because when I asked you who I should look into and read a little bit about to get some background before we chatted, you suggested everybody but Unger. So I'm curious. I, I assume that was somewhat of a joke, uh, but I'm curious, sort of, where you feel like you diverge with Unger on how you would uh, see this movement or how you would want people to understand uh, the goals of this movement. Sure. So Roberto Unger. Um, is a really excellent book you can get from uh, Verso Publishing for like a pittance at this point uh, called The Critical Legal Studies Movement, Another Time, A Greater Task. And the basis of the book is sort of a reflection on a talk turned article turned book from the 80s when critical legal studies was at its apex. Um, we all know how that the goes. stars that was. And you know, his reflections on it. And so Unger sort of puts the critical legal theorists in the three sort of general camps uh, at the time. You have those who are more deconstructivist. So they're looking at, you know, what are the sort of language games, you could call it, you know, using the deconstructivist method through the law, through statutes to sort of arise at um, a conclusion And he dismisses that as sort of an intellectual waste of time, which I somewhat agree with. He then takes aim at, you know, critical legal theorists who are more indebted to the sort of Marxist tradition of combining sort of this analysis of the law with, you know, power and um, trying to reshape hierarchies in a sense. He takes aim at those. uh, He doesn't like that. So, in fact, there's a school of critical legal theorists who reject sort of this Marxist Mm. paradigm, these sort of universalizable concepts, uh, which is the school of thought I tend to um, belong in. But he has a very interesting sort of uh, development where it's looking at the creation of the institutions of law. What concepts are embedded within each area of the law that 
sort of, I guess you could say dialectically, are opposed to one another. And, you know, a good example mm-hmm. of this is contract law, where you have this, you know, freedom to contract, you know, you can contract with whoever you want, but then there's an asterisk, you know, we don't want you to contract with kids or, mm-hmm. you know, you can't really contract for the creation of a family unit or um, you can't really contract among families. So can't contract they, people into slavery. Yeah, you can't do that. You can't, you know, contract for slavery. So there are concepts that are in tension with one another and the institutions we create reflect a preference of one over the other. And so we can, and this is why I think Unger is an interesting critical legal theorist, is that, you know, critical legal theory gives us the space for imagination. Hmm. Interesting. So you, you mentioned, though, so so that's, I guess, one of the positive sides of it. On the flip side, you also mentioned that it kind of lacks teeth to some extent. And I think this is a critique that critical race theorists tend to raise as well. Do you feel like you know, that this movement, while well-meaning, doesn't actually turn into much? Are there any kinds of substantive accomplishments that you would lay at the feet of critical legal theory? (laughs) Um, That's a damning silence. And that's sort of the issue is, you know, this is such a bugaboo that, you know, at the end of the day, what has it done to necessarily transform the legal academy? I think it broadly opened up space to sort of critique law and you know the paradigms of law but as a Mm -hmm. method in and of itself as a collection of you know scholars it's sort of fizzled in the 80s Mm. um you know you're not going to find law school class critical legal studies um you know it might be mentioned here or there in like a history of you know legal thought um, or if you have a legal thought course but generally you know it's accomplished very little and you know the mark of a strong school of you know legal thought in my estimation is its impact on the law Mm -hmm. Uh, the supreme court right now is stacked you know elliot kagan uh, said it best we're all originalists now you know, if there, if, if there is a, you know, school of thought that is one in the, you know, ba- marketplace of ideas, it's originalism in, in some extent. Yeah. That's the, Which is not so much a school of thought. It's just like, do whatever you want and make it up later. I mean, some some people of the critical tradition or the legal realist tradition would say, yeah, that's that's basically what originalism is. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I, I think it open the door to the different ways you can come at the um, the law. You know, you can come at it from a more, you know, economic-based background. You can come at it, you know, not a law and economics background, but looking at, like, this is the economic effect of these policies. Critical race theory, you know, picked up uh, where critical legal studies stopped. Uh, the intersection of um, gender and the law sort of built off of this. So it sort of was a opening salvo to a lot of the different um, spooky mm-hmm. crit things that live out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. I, I mean, I'm curious if it, you know, if you damn it in the sense of like, it doesn't, hasn't accomplished much. It's interesting to then still sort of 
it be your thing or something that you are sympathetic to in that kind of way? Do you see that as being like, this is still the right way to approach the law, even if it is contingently historically been very effective? Or how do you how do you reconcile those things? Not meant as a, a personal attack or anything. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious. No, I, I think it's, you know, it's important. So a big part of why critical legal studies sort of started and perhaps why it fizzled is because a big part of what goes in the law schools are you have, and the crits sort of um, saw this, was you had, you know, left-leaning, progressively minded people enter the law thinking, oh, you can make a difference. You can do these things. And because of how law is taught, they become sort of jaded or more conservative. There's Mm -hmm. a deep conservative bias within the law. Um, you know, to minimize risk is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they wanted to provide, you know, these sort of analytical tools to send lawyers out into the world to try and, you know, disrupt, you know, standard legal orthodoxy. Um, and I'm sympathetic to that. Um, however, if you're a bunch, you know, this is sort of a critique, is if the only people who are teaching this are the Ivy League uh, scholars, you know, people like Unger or uh, Bell Hooks, whenever he was, um, not Bell Hooks, who am I thinking of? Mm. Regardless, um, whenever you sort of have this uh, deep elite professorial class teaching at these elite universities to elite mm-hmm. students who are going to go into big firm jobs or a clerkship at the federal judiciary, that isn't going to really give you a lot of power as an intellectual Mm -hmm. sort of movement. You know, you're not going to say to people, here's this way to uh, disrupt this system that is now going to carry you through your career. Right. Swallow you whole. Yeah. So, you know, it really didn't pick up a lot of steam in that sense. Um, Mm. Do I think it has, you know, useful analytical tools? Sure. But I don't think, you know, truthfully, you're going to have more. You're not going to find more progressive lawyers just because they, you know, read, you know, Robert Delgado or Mari Matsuda or. Uh, Roberto Unger mm-hmm. or Duncan Kennedy, like any of these like radical, you know, law professors, um, you're not, you're not going to find them out on the street if they weren't already sort of ideologically to the left, you know, they already mm-hmm. existed. And if you're mm-hmm. of the left, you're probably going to enter more of the public interest or government work until you burn out. <laughs> That's fair. That's probably pretty accurate. Uh, so, So let's talk about then like the narrative that is, I think, often put forward, like if folks have heard of critical legal theory out in the world, 95% of them have heard of it in relation, like you said, to critical race theory, which has had a little bit of a, a tiny blip of a moment out there in the general public now. You know, let me, I'll give the narrative that I've been taught about their relationship, and then you tell me sort of how close that narrative is to what you know people are taught in in the legal side of things. As I understand it, critical race theory comes along, does the things that you're talking about. Generally, 
by the critical race theorist perspective, fails to make substantial change, primarily in their view, because it fails to take into account race and other intersectional factors. And so you have Mm -hmm. critical race theory come along to talk about, um, you know, the role of race. And you have famous examples of like intersectionality between being a woman and being a, a person of color, meaning that you are um more likely to be um not included or 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 uh you know you have more adverse outcomes as a result um now we can we can then get into criticizing crt in a second uh but would you say how far off the mark do you feel like that is from the way things are looked at in your side of the world i would say it's not particularly far off i think there may be sort of a disconnect between this idea of and i think this is just emblematic of a lot of the deviations in different schools of thought um this idea that oh the critical legal studies people weren't doing this because they're racist or they're not um you know they're they're intentionally avoiding this topic um Mm -hmm. i think far more likely is the space was opened and people with an interest and this way of critically approaching the intersection of law and race, Mm -hmm. they started doing work. And that's far more in many senses, abstract concrete than what the critical legal studies people were doing. And that's Mm -hmm. probably why the movement sort of died in a large uh, sense of things is because it's at this very, abstract level of how do you approach the law and what principles you're sort of playing around with and who has power what's the politics of it versus you know what Mm -hmm. did this case do racially you know what do the Cherokee cases sort of uh say about the creation of race in America you know creating this sort of paternalistic yet um legally distinct identity for tribes people um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the big influences of critical race theory, which nobody seems to want to deal with, um, those who are, you know, critics, is, you know, what defined what was white in mm-hmm. the United States? The law did. Right. You know, you had Plessy v. Ferguson. That is mm-hmm. a emblematic case of one drop equals black. You know, how do you get this distinction between those who were living in um, the West during the conquest um, and were seen as, you know, proto, not even proto, European settlers who, because of their mixing with indigenous people, we would now recognize as Latino or Latinx. Mm -hmm. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, the creation of race in this country has always been a legal categorism. And that's, yep. you know, a far more concrete and interesting discussion than, you know, how do you approach the, you know, study or, um, you know, critique of law, you know, abstractly. So that's very interesting to me in the sense, certainly, um, philosoph- you know, historically and philosophically, like I find when I was reading through the critical race stuff, one of the you know stories that I came across was examples of how you know individuals who were married legally in one state 
could cross a state border and be criminals because they were engaged in a illegal interracial marriage right. where the factor was not just that one state had a law against interracial marriage and another didn't, but that one state defined who was white differently enough from another that like you could be legal under one interracial marriage law and illegal under another one. Um, and then there are of course lots of very weird cases of like individuals there, there was the classic sort of example of um, the opposite argument being given in two cases back to back where one individual was denied being white because he didn't meet the proper formal criteria, whereas the next one was denied being white because while meeting the formal criteria, he didn't have the right appearance that a common everyday man would recognize as being a white individual and therefore did not count. Um, so I'm very sympathetic to the interesting part of that now. What does that mean, though, for like the role of critical race theory in a world where I think critics would say, well, OK, we'll just get rid of all of the references to race and all the laws ever. Um, and then we don't have to worry about that stuff. Right. That's that's history now. We're done with that. Um, how do you how would you respond to something like that? Well, I think this is the other sort of um, deep uh, contribution through critical uh, race theory, which I think is you know a feature, not a bug. You know, it's it's often thrown out that like, oh, you're throwing reason out if you're doing this because you're using stories. That's a methodological um, mm-hmm. point of this. But I think there's something to be said as the story is a reasoning structure, because, for example, in the development of um, probable cause as a standard, mm-hmm. um, a officer's individual racial animus, you know, what's going through their head doesn't really matter. So long Hmm. as objectively probable cause exists now, you know, you can say, okay, that's not a racial thing, but if we're not allowed to inquire into the subjective intent of people to counterbalance this objective criteria, you know, you are in a sense privileging one over the other. This is just a feature of the system. Doesn't make mm-hmm. it right, but that's what you get when you have a fully colorblind approach to things. You've normalized in a large sense this idea that disparate outcomes under the law, so long as the law on the books says equality, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And you sort of see this, you know, the criminal justice system is a good example of this. Um, you know, depending on the race of the offender, you will have disparate outcomes. You know, if it's your first contact with the justice system, but you are, mm-hmm. you know, accused of a heinous rape, do you think, you know, and, and you're a juvenile, do you think you should have been, you know, released to your parents' custody? Mm-hmm. Most people would say, no, it's a heinous rape. And yet I've seen, you know, people go... And they're white versus, you know, uh, defendants of color who are accused of lower grade felonies. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the, you know, there's a willingness in some, and there may be a class issue to that. Um, you know, who is paying for a private attorney who can pay for a private attorney versus those who can't. But I think crucially... Mm-hmm. These are things that we need to explore. You know, why do you have judges thinking that way? What is there in the weighing of stories or circumstances that 
lead to different outcomes. So this is interesting. This seems like one kind of, so there's like, I think there's a couple of different ways that you can apply these kinds of critical race theory um, approaches. So one of them is this, what seems like what you're getting at is potentially like implicit biases within individuals application of the law leading to uh, statistically different outcomes for different groups. So the law might not say treat different races differently and individuals might not be thinking in their minds, I really want to treat individuals differently, but those may be, that may be what is happening. And it seems like there has to be some sort of explanation there. And one potential explanation, as you mentioned, could be this sort of could be potentially psychological, um, or there could be uh, other sort of systemic factors that are external to the the mind of judges or things like that that are creating these different outcomes. And then it seems to me the other application would be in the highlighting of the ways in which laws can be written to be on their face race neutral to only you know be applying universally in this way, but because of the way they are what they are doing. They still impact different races disparately. The the classic example that I always like is the uh, the example of banning animal sacrifices as a mm. way to get as a way to attack a a uh, colored community because they practiced voodoo or something along those lines. Um, and so you know the law technically applies the same to everyone, but because it was written knowing that there was this specific group and that they were trying to target this specific group the mere fact that the language of the law is is colorblind does not mean that it is not a racially uh harmful law do you feel right. like all of those and, are on this yeah go ahead yeah and you know to to that point the way to prove that if you had a claim is remarkably difficult you would have to prove that your mm -hmm. legislature despite not having any textual animus, specifically had animus in the passing of this law, which mm -hmm. if there's nothing in, say, a bill's record that indicates on a floor, you know, the big part of why we pass this reform is to, you know, harm, you know, particular groups, you're kind of SOL mm -hmm. as a plaintiff. Um, mm -hmm. You know, another classic example of this is, you know, we're going to get people off of welfare. We're going to take care of welfare queens. We're going to reform the law and make it more stringent. And, you know, we have the data that shows who was impacted by that. Mm -hmm. You know, we're families of color. And, um, you know, that's never going to be, you know, necessarily challenged. Um, and again, you know, I want to point out that like a, a critical attacking of the law in this way is simply pointing these things out mm -hmm. is looking at these outcomes and how they you know mesh between you know ideals and you know different norms that we want to prioritize it doesn't necessarily mean you know one side wins out versus the other all the time mm -hmm. so you would say generally you find critical race theory to have some value or to serve some function rather than being an existential threat to Western civilization? I mean, no more than any other, you know, analytical tool. I mean, that's the thing, sure. right? Is, you know, these are all analytical tools in different schools of thought of how you want to approach the law. And, you know, again, 
And if we want to go pound for pound, dollar for dollar for, you know, how much influence uh, critical race theory has in the average law school curriculum, there was one class offered in three years Mm -hmm. as a seminar on race, Mm -hmm. racism, and American law. Um, (laughs) I probably get more critical race theory in my education degree than you're getting in, you're going to get in law school is what you're saying? Well, you definitely would, uh, just because I think, you know, it's... I think education sort of allows itself to see those impacts, whereas law primarily is is held to this idea of both formalism, so what the law says, and applying mm-hmm. what the law says, you know, through statute or what rules come out of um, a judicial opinion, and objective, objectivism, you know, what is the law trying to do? And very rarely, particularly in a you know society that did abolish you know things like formal segregation and jim crow you're gonna want Mm -hmm. that objective of you know race neutrality so the idea that there is still these systems is constantly relitigated you know the new jim crow caused a stir but that's all it ever does you Mm -hmm. know the legal field is not particularly friendly for for many different reasons to radical change um and i imagine (laughs) the the past four years of packing the courts is probably not helping either well you know and and some people would say you know but you still have people being like oh some trump judges uh ruled for the law or followed the law and you know for anybody who is a lawyer knows why they did because Trump's legal team was staffed with probably some of the most incompetent lawyers I think you may ever see. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, Rudy Giuliani hasn't been in a courtroom for about 30 years. Mm-hmm. Imagine not doing your profession for 30 years and then <laughs> thinking you're going to walk right back into it. It's, it's absurd. You know, right. a lot of the big law firms stopped touching it because the case, honestly was proven too quickly and Mm -hmm. hamstrung a lot of lawyers. Um, But, you know, as an aside, you know, you have this procedural aspect of the law and then you have the, you know, substantive part of it, but then you also have the political. And, you know, I think crits across the board, if you, if you adopt a critical approach, you're going to, you're going to look at the politics of things and mm-hmm. no shit, you have a 5-4 conservative majority, really more of a 6-3 at this point. Like, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. It's just the math. Yeah, Sorry. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. So let's let's talk about how to apply this stuff a little bit. And we'll come back around to uh, critical legal theory here some. So... You wrote an article, uh, I think, for the or a co- comment or something for the Dickinson Law Review called right. "I like the I like the name of this." So I was going to share it. Um, Whose market is it anyway? Uh, philosophy and law critique of the Supreme Court's free speech absolutism. Um, mm-hmm. Now I can imagine I I can guess who the answer is for your rhetorical question, but do you want to lay out whose market it is and why it's the Supreme Court's fault? Sure. So, whose market is it? Uh, it isn't yours or mine. Um, And I mean that broadly in the sense that, like, not only is it not, you know, those who would probably say they're of the left, but probably, you know, those on the right as well, to a large extent, because, Hmm. 
you know, if you do take, you know, if you take, if you take a left uh, political project seriously, which, you know, I, I, I more or less do, um, you want to have liberation for like everybody, you know, even if they are your ideological, uh, opponents, the mm-hmm. Supreme Court has never particularly been interested in having free speech be a tool for a lot. Um, and I, and I want to make something very clear from the get-go. Um, people seem to think the Bill of Rights from the word go applied. Lawyers know they don't. They started to apply through a process called incorporation which means mm-hmm. the Supreme Court selectively begins applying the Bill of Rights as they applied to the federal government and what the federal government did to the states. And the reason I bring mm-hmm. this up is the beginning interpretations of the First Amendment's uh, free speech clause really begin in the early 20th century, and the Supreme Court comes screaming out the gate with upholding free speech uh restrictions um Mm. as targeting you know anti-war advocates advocates uh left-wing organizational groups um you know eugene v so there wasn't much case law before that in terms of interpreting very little um Mm -hmm. and you know part partly that is you know how the supreme court takes its cases but another is you know what takes priority and the states had a wide variety of um restrictions on speech for sedition or syndicalism and the Supreme Court upheld those by and large through most of its um, history. Uh, Mm -hmm. You had, you know, the eminent liberal, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes uphold these restrictions. And, you know, if there's one thing anybody takes from this uh, podcast, it's this, the (laughs) quote is not shout fire in a crowded theater. It's shout falsely that there's a fire in a crowded theater that's the mm-hmm. you know distinction you can't say something that false but you can, and that's why you know he's okay with these sort of restrictions because they harm government they're harming the war effort these are important things uh louis mm-hmm. brandeis whenever he joins the court uh has a big problem with that and holmes to his credit walks it back but by and large throughout you know red scare one and red scare two the Supreme Court is very okay with upholding free speech restrictions, and it isn't until uh, Yates v. United States and then Brandenburg v. Ohio where the court starts saying, all right, what we're really concerned about is advocacy. You know, when you're advocating for imminent, unlawful conduct, then mm-hmm. we'll be okay with restrictions. But what that then does instead of targeting, it hamstrings the ability of communities to um, respond to targeted acts of, in many ways, or I would say political violence or um, hate speech. You know, the mm-hmm. Supreme Court upheld uh, Nazis' right to march in Skokie, which it was a primarily Jewish uh, neighborhood, uh, upheld in RAVV St. Paul, or rather struck down uh, a ordinance forbidding, you know, the uh, placing of a swastika to mm-hmm. sort of, you know, harass and uh, terrorize people. And then Virginia V. Black found uh, the, you know, jury instructions to be problematic for these sort of things. Um, 
the Supreme and, and by you know very quickly truncating these cases, you have this shift in the court, as I perceive it, from the Supreme Court using or not using free speech to uh, uphold state power to now saying, well, everything's equal unless you're really inciting a riot. Mm-hmm. You're okay. Which, you know, and there's a point I make in the article is if marching, you know, in full, you know, Nazi uniform down a, you know, Jewish neighborhood and shouting the usual screeds of, you know, Nazism is not an incitement to some form of conduct, you know, particularly if you thought, you know, what would happen if that march ran into people leaving synagogue, then what the fuck is Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, really, mm-hmm. this is sort of the, the tension whenever people talk about constitutional rights. And I, I'm sort of rambling, so so cut me off at some point. But, you know, we, we think all of these rights exist up in the ether. And they do to some extent, but they are in competition with one another. Your mm-hmm. right to free speech is in competition with equal protection. You know, the ideals behind both of these rights are in tension. We've chosen one right over the other. So let me ask you about the Nazis then, or the the KKK or whatever we want to talk about, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You keep mentioning on a Jewish street, right? So what is your take on, like, should you uphold the right for Nazis to march as long as they're marching down Gentile streets or, you know, as long as it's, I guess they're, they're Protestants. So as long as it's not a Catholic street either, like how should we, how should we balance those things so that we don't have them marching down Jewish streets, um, but are still sort of preserving their freedom? Or do you think we should just be like, you shouldn't be marching? Well, I mean, it's sort of a, you know, tension, there and I'm, I'm not trying mm-hmm. to cop out because there are you know there are many ways to skin a cat in, in you know the law and that's again <laughs> one of the beautiful things about you know critical legal studies is you know it, it exposes that this isn't the way it has to be you know it simply mm-hmm. can be um this way and there are alternatives we have examples across the world where nazis by and large they are criminalized you also have laws where communists are criminalized You know, those are options. Am I in favor of full-blown, you know, restrictions to that extent? Eh, I am very suspicious of state power in that extent. But do I think, you know, this Wild West uh, regime we sort of have is acceptable to that problem? No. And so should, you know, Nazis be able to march and, you know, go through that just to be like, hey, we're Nazis? Sure, but what are they saying and what are they trying to accomplish in that, um, you know, Mm -hmm. protest or demonstration? I think that's a far more interesting question to figure out how to resolve. And, you know, again, to uh, disrupt the belief that all these critical race theorists who don't like free speech, um, you know, want to just have censorship... um, Two of the big ones, Richard Delgado and Mari Matsuda, uh, both come down very strongly against, you know, that those sort of expressions of speech, but neither of which are really particularly interested in censorship. They're more interested in giving power to groups 
who have been harmed by that speech or threatened by that speech to seek some form of redress. So for mm-hmm. so so to apply that to your example, if they're marching down, say, a Jewish street, those people who, you know, were being in, in essence harassed and, you know, targeted because they are particularly Jewish would have a legal remedy in tort law in some uh, method versus a Gentile street. Things get a little more um, messy, but I think the key thing is, does the answer change under our current regime? No. I mean, we're, we're sort of mm-hmm. hamstrung and I don't foresee a whole lot of change in the imminent future for better or worse. Do you see a substantial difference between those scenarios and for, you know, people putting echoes around certain people's names online to, to sort of bell them as uh, Jewish journalists so that they will get harassed by Nazis online? Or do you feel like, are you in favor of sort of more increased moderation? Or do you think that critical theory should be, as you interpret it, should be leaning towards sort of keeping Donald Trump off Twitter or keeping Alex Jones off Twitter or trying to, you know, clamp down on QAnon or these, all these different kinds of, mm-hmm. um, you know, falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater is, is, to put it that way. Right. I mean, there, there's sort of the issue of, you know, what do you do with the, you know, QAnon aunt who's, you know, going off on Facebook? Like, does she get censored? Probably not. Cause you know, she, she's a drop in the bucket, but these, you know, bigger accounts that have the power to influence people, I think that creates a, you know, question of, you know, are, are, aren't you really inciting? Like, if this is just your feed day in and day out. However, mm-hmm. you know, I want to stress, you know, again, this idea that, you know, just because you're critical of it in one aspect you know, the, the disparity of, you know, equality and um, free speech absolutism, you know, there's a secondary element, which is, do you really want to give large quasi-monopolies the ability to control discourse? And if you do, how do you do it? You know, do you have it democratically? Do you have it with, you know, procedural van you know, safeguards, you know, where before you're banned, you get like a warning that unless you like shape up, you're going to get banned. Um, And these are, you Mm -hmm. know, questions that if there's anything that strikes me about the current sort of discourse around critical race theory or critical legal theory or crit anything really, because it's sort of lost a lot of its um, meaning is these are just questions and we we should debate them. So mm-hmm. simply saying I'm not really for free speech doesn't necessarily mean I'm for the government, you know, telling you what you can and can't say. It means primarily for somebody like me, I find the absolutism of, you know, you pretty much have to say, hey, group, go harm X person to even cognizantly be, you know, subject to incitement laws. And for the record, you know, free speech absolutism does have a cost. You know, this wild west of it. Um, I mean, we just watched the president incite a riot and then his lawyers argued that he had the free 
speech to incite a riot and has been acquitted based on that argument. So I, I think mean, I think there, I can agree with the you. President, yeah. But I think far more, you know, sinisterly is you had something like the Myanmar, uh, you know, genocide that was being promulgated a couple of years ago where you had just this widespread, you know, ability to mm-hmm. dehumanize, you know, other people and incite, you know, those sort of violences that we saw, you know, begin to play out. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and, and I'm very and I'm very cognizant of the the counter argument, which is once you start with some, how do you draw a distinction? And this is a tradition that, again, you know, even if you are of the left or progressive, exists. You know, for every socialist out there who you know says today, you know, hate speech doesn't work. There's another socialist from a very different tradition and still exists today that epitomizes the need for free speech. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, in your uh, article, you brought in uh, the, anti- the, 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 the free speech absolutist's favorite philosopher, John Stuart Mill. And um, I'm curious sort of what your take is on how, how folks who are, you know, if they're out there and they're arguing about the difficulties with that free speech absolutism and somebody slaps them with Mill, what do you think is the right way to sort of push back on those on liberty kinds of arguments? Well, I think we need to, you know, cards on the table across the board in philosophy. We need to acknowledge that these people lived in a different world and their philosophies don't necessarily always, particularly Mm -hmm. when they're socio-political philosophies, they may not hold scrutiny to the world as it exists today. Look, I love me some Mm -hmm. Marx. I think Marx has some very interesting um, contributions to the notion of, you know, revolt or history or you know capitalism at large but he also was living in a very different era it you know sort of is it's about as useful in some respects as you know the cosplay socialists or communists on twitter who mm-hmm. think that relitigating the russian revolution is going to give you answers for today it's not and I think to, to some extent, that's the way you approach the Millian approach. You know, Mill, Mill has this concept within free speech. And Mill isn't even a free speech absolutist. Anybody who's actually mm-hmm. read the man knows he has the harm principle. You know, is your speech going to cause harm? If you're going mm-hmm. to, you know, essentially threaten, you know, a, you know, corn uh, producer as, you know, a robber baron to some extent, um, <laughs> you know, to incite a crowd to, you know, beat him to death. Well, that's probably not going to survive um, any sort of uh, million defense of free speech. I think the thing with Mill, though, is I don't think he could have been aware of the Internet's ability to promulgate falsehoods. You know, Mill has this Mm -hmm. sort of naive concept that truth will beat out false ideas you know the the good you know the wheat will be separated from the shaft and public opinion will sort itself out almost like a free market and part of that is mill is a committed uh liberal economist Mm -hmm. well that's why i think the you know marketplace of ideas and if you want to use that analogy you got to take the good with the bad and acknowledge that if the marketplace of ideas is a market 
It's a vastly deregulated market that has allowed things like QAnon, Pizzagate, um, other conspiracy theories to promulgate. And Mm -hmm. there's really no check off on that. And now our discourse is sort of stuck in this limbo of half of the country believes simply because their candidate lost that a election was per se illegitimate despite no real evidence of it or, you know, evidence of, you know, a communist plot to teach it in American schools because they teach that maybe Vietnam was a bad idea. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't think Mill's wrong, but I think Mm -hmm. he's, you know, much like any philosopher of the, you know, sort of classical liberal phase is from a different era. And I think, you know, you have to reckon with that. That doesn't mean he's wrong about the idea of free speech and the benefits of tolerance. But what was good for one era of the world does not necessitate that it is continuously good. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm very sympathetic to this idea that, you know, this marketplace of ideas concept falls apart when you're looking at the internet where people can pump you know, whatever they want into the marketplace of ideas in a disproportionate, you know, certainly disproportionate kind of way and shape uh, how how the, the conversation happens as a result. I think also the other factor that I see in our current epistemic crisis besides the technology is the, and maybe he could have anticipated this and did or didn't, I don't know, but like the idea, the, the reality of there being in a two-party system, one of the parties being so thoroughly committed to anti-science, you know, anti-intellectualism, a very specific, very, you know, factually inaccurate perception of reality and sort of digging into that alternate reality so deeply that it becomes very difficult to have a conversation even on shared facts. I think he, I think folks like Mill probably more imagined that what divergence there would be could be reconciled in theory, mostly because we would at least be converging onto a shared reality of facts as science progresses. Right. And, you know, that's sort of the idea that, you know, if truth beats out falsehood, you know, Mm -hmm. you're going to have eventually this sort of game theory of we're going to get to the truth and that's just going to be policy, um, which if you look at politics, that's just not how it is. Mm-hmm. It's driven more by ideology. Reason really isn't going to be driving politicians. Otherwise, y- you would have a system run by technocrats. Right. And instead what we have, I guess, are neoliberal technocrats uh, failing to run the system in between it being slowly dismantled by anti-system people. So that's fun. Um, so I realize we're starting to run a little short on time here. Do you want to spend a we've gotten we've gotten deep into the void. Do you want to spend a little bit on sort of possible solutions that you maybe consider, maybe recommend when it comes to these kinds of free speech issues? I think a big thing is, you know, it, it's a cultural value, free speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to have to, you know, I, I think the argument is going to be less about free speech and more what do you want to prioritize you know do you want to prioritize equality or do you want to prioritize i suppose liberty 
And if you want to have a society that is, you know, so, and that's really the, you know, if you want to really boil it down, I think that's the struggle that constantly is plaguing America. And right now, liberty is the name of the game. Mm-hmm. Maybe one day something bigger will happen. Um, but I do think, you know, when you when you want to start thinking about free speech, and I think this is, you know, tie it all together, the lesson of crit, is the solution doesn't have to be rank censorship. It doesn't have to be, you know, I'm censoring you because you said something wrong or, I mean, we, we could have dived deep into cancel culture, but it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be something so heavy handed. There can be other remedies. And it's really a, you know, struggle of imagination of everyone to think it's a all or nothing game of you either can say anything you want or it's pure censorship. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point. But of course, I think, I think a lot of people are, you know, I don't want to say uh, embedded, mm-hmm. but, you know, the minute they are pushed back on, it's canceling and there's mm-hmm. a vested interest there. Yeah, and I think a vested interest in catastrophizing any shift as being the beginning of a slippery slope towards disaster. So I think those are those are very good points that like we can have serious discussions about how to balance these competing ethical demands, all of which are important and all of which are real, um, and that we can't we can't be absolutist about any of them. I think, and so we've got to find a balance there. So yeah, great stuff. Do you want to let a, let folks know? if they were interested in doing some more reading, especially folks who obviously don't have as much of a formal background uh, besides obviously Roberto Unger, who you're clearly a huge fan of um, who else you would suggest people give a, give a read to, to learn more about legal theory. So if you're interested in sort of the free speech, uh, critical race theory uh, intersection, uh, there's a book called words that wound. That is a collection by four of, you know, the big greats, um, I would say Mm -hmm. in this uh, field, um, two of which I put a uh, huge stock in, Rich Delgado and Mari Matsuda, which looks at, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile this issue of racial justice and free speech? Um, Another book, it's sort of a thick one, but I think it's worth looking into is race law stories, which Hmm. while, it is marketed as a sort of legal textbook is not actually a priced as a textbook or B um, written as such. It is a collection of essays by several scholars that sort of surmise the rulings of the Supreme court that deal with racial issues and, you know, shows the side of it that, you know, is worth considering about race that, you know, maybe the opinions themselves don't, or, you know, history has sort of vindicated, quote-unquote, the progressive view of race. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Generally, uh, you know, again, these are not uh, omnipresent fields in the field of law, though, so Mm -hmm. um, I'm always looking myself for interesting um, discussions in these things. Great. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sort of disentangling some of this stuff. And so now, unfortunately, that I still means I have to torture you. So this is the enlightening round. 
Enlightenment comes from within. Oh. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you a list of things. You are going to tell me, are those things real or not real? Those are your only options. You do not get to okay. hedge. You do not get to define what the word real means. Do you understand the rules? I mean, I'm not really sure I've consented to these rules, but, you know, let's give it a go. <laughs> oh, you're, you're already here. And by coming on the show, you've necessarily already consented. Cut the mic. Uh, cut the mic. <laughs> so just to, to test things out here to make sure we're, we're going to start it right. Prime the pump, as it were. Would you say that anything is real? Sure. Okay, great. So let's find out what is real. So real or not real? The external world. Real? Okay. Colors? Not real. Phenomenal consciousness or inner states real. of awareness. Okay, good. Free will? Not real. Selves? Or persons? Real. Genders? The answer was real. Hmm. Races? Uh, not real. Species? Uh, not real. Morality? Not real. Hmm. Rights? Not real. Mm-hmm. Knowledge? Not real. God or gods? Not real. Society? Real. Money? Not real. Numbers? Not real. Fictional characters? <laughs> uh, not real. Mm -hmm. Holes, as in a hole in the ground? Real. Chairs? The answer is real. <laughs> Sandwiches? Um, real. Science? Real. Natural laws? Not real. Beauty? Not real. Love? Uh, real. Mm. Causality? Real. And finally, time? Not real. Interesting. There were a lot of uh, interesting splits there, I feel like. Several where you you didn't go with the normal, uh, like society and numbers, having one of those be real and not the other was very interesting. How are you feeling? Well, yeah, if you're a, you know, hardcore, you know, once you start getting down certain, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to linguistic, uh, constructive, uh, things being not real. So numbers like mm -hmm. two is simply what we've decided it is. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, some of them I was just fucking with you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the morality, you were just messing with me. No, on that sandwiches. One, I, I actually struggled no, with that okay. one. Just keep, keep it internally consistent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, I think the highest correlation we've found is between chairs and sandwiches, actually. Interesting. Yep. Is this a uh, grand, well, 
project. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit of side uh, mad science work. Nothing, nothing publishable or anything, but fun. <laughs> Well, Spencer, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming on and chatting about all things critical. Uh, do you want to let folks know where they can find your stuff? Sure. You can see my occasional ramblings on uh, Cafe Sinister on Twitter. Um, the uh, Who's Market Anyway uh, through the Dickinson Law Review. And yeah, that's sort of what's out in the ether uh, right now. Um, Great. It's cool stuff. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, no, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I hope this is an introduction to a so-called crit who... I mean, maybe I want to destroy Western civilization, but I, I sound reasonable while I... <laughs> ah, the truth comes out. <laughs> I didn't ask you if Western civilization was real or not. I guess I should add that well, to the Well, that list. one gets no. a no. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard no. I understand. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Not a problem. Equipped to thank you, but as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our new patron, Kenny and Kyle's App Company. Uh, and as always, thanks to our top tier patrons, our Archon patrons, Chad T, Jesse Urbinowitz, and Brenda Goodman. I want to be the tempeh in a Foucault and Camus sandwich. Jude Law's Canadian accent and existence makes my pussy throb. Fix the vote and dude and as always all the thanks to our archduke level patrons big easy blasphemy creepy dot voidy eye thingy and dave maslich thank you all so very much if you'd like to support the show please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app follow us on twitter at etv pod and if you notice a small void growing within you consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, no matter how you're feeling right now, remember, you are the void and the void is you.